We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, Abigail Lee is speaking with registered architect and director at Maytree Studios, Rebecca Caldwell. Abigail talks with Rebecca about how she designs the kind of world she wants to live in. Her design philosophy combines ethics, social and environmental responsibility with the forward-thinking sensibilities of contemporary architecture. Rebecca is genuinely invested in her clients and advocates for a human's first architect's second approach to design, putting ego aside to find a creative solution to their needs within the budget. Let's jump in. Before we begin, I would like to take a moment to recognise the traditional owners of the land we are recording on today, the Turrbal and Yagara people. I recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this country and acknowledge that they never see their sovereignty. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm here today with Rebecca Caldwell. Beck is the founder and director of the Brisbane-based residential practice Maytree Studios. She is a fierce advocate for lifting the curtain on architectural practice to make what we do more accessible to the general public. Beck brings an honesty and vulnerability to every conversation she has, which in turn allows for richer and more meaningful exchanges. Earlier this year, Beck wrote an article for Parler called The Art of Good Business. In this article, Beck writes about how the ever-prevalent suffering artist mentality was detrimental to both the success of her business and her personal life. Beck dives into five principles that she has learned over the years to make Matry Studios a successful business, which in turn allows her and her team to do the work they truly love to do, without sacrificing their own well-being. Today, we are going to talk about what drove Beck to these principles and how they have transformed her business. We will discuss how this newfound approach has impacted client outcomes and the overall well-being of the business. Hello. Hello. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk about this today. I've just, for some context as well, you are also my boss. So my name is Abby and I'm an architectural graduate. I've been working at Matrix Studios for almost three years now. Of course, a fan of the architectural work we do, but I've also really loved everything that you stand for and advocate for in your blogs and articles. So that's what we're talking about today. So that's really exciting. That's lovely, Abby. (laughs) It works. So we are here to talk about your article, The Art of Good Business. Could you explain the idea behind this article and what caused you to write it? Yeah, it was a long time coming really and something I felt maybe shy would be the word or hesitant about putting out there. But it just became more and more of a passion because whenever you get together with other architects, you talk about architecture, but mostly everybody goes, you know, swaps war stories and shares what they're struggling with. And when we step away from the beautiful glossy picture, there's this whole process of creating that architecture. And I don't think it gets enough airtime in our industry in terms of, um, so yes, it was just really an attempt to try and start to fill that gap a little bit from my perspective. Yeah, and you, I mean, you started out talking about a failure that yes. you, or a perceived failure, a failure that you had with the business. So when you decided to, well, I mean, maybe explain a bit more about that failure. Yeah, so I started the business as a last-ditch effort 
to create a safe and happy place for myself in architecture. I was fairly burnt out and I always wanted to bring people along with me on that journey. I never had any goal of creating something massive, but I think what happens when you aren't deliberate about what you create, then you will probably naturally grow. And that was my problem, was actually lots of work, but the wrong types of work wasn't the right fit culturally and ethically for me. And I got to the point that I had one kid, he was one, I was burnt out, everybody around me was burnt out. You know, sometimes I'd get into the car park before work, have a cry, pull myself Mm -hmm. together and then get into the office to try be, you know, quote mark leader for the office. And that was the point that I just went, you know what, hands up, my hand, put my hand up and said, I can't keep doing this. And so I got some advice about whether or not the business was actually sustainable at all and uh, from a CFO. And he recommended either going really hard and working really hard on it or just shutting the whole thing down. And in all my wisdom, I just didn't listen to him at all and (laughs) found an intermediate path. So that, that was that point, first point of failure. I mean, the funny thing was I had to figure out what my hesitation was in saying this model has not worked. And really my biggest hesitation was what my colleagues would think of me, not what was right for me, what was right for my family, what was right for my employees, but, you know, what people would think, you know, about that idea of failure. So once I let go of that, it was pretty easy to then start building from the ground up the kind of business that I wanted um, with the kind of working clients that I wanted as well. Yeah, so you let go of most of your staff yep. and just ended up with you and one other person. Yeah. Um, is that right? Yeah. And then I guess from there, what were your short-term or long-term goals? Like was the goal to get back to the bigger team or you were happy with how you were? Yeah, so when we say bigger team, we were I think six or seven and I gave everybody like a good six months and said, look, I'm going to close this down. I'm going to let go of these clients um, that had been repeat clients and gave them sort of six months to find the right spot for them that might be the right fit. The intention was never to grow again. The intention was from that point on, I felt so burnt by the process of, you know, trying to run a business to feed mouths that I didn't think that I would grow again. And that's actually been something I've had to address since, that fear of growth. But, yeah, so uh, Andy Keefe, who's a 25% shareholder in Maytree Studios now, and I launched off sort of on our own under the same banner Um, and it's not as hard as starting a business from scratch because you've already got the groundwork the branding the website you know you're not doing everything from scratch you've got contacts and clients already so there was some momentum there and over time I guess the key thing that I wanted to do from that point forward was always build it from a really sustainable base so only work with the people that we gelled with and that brought us joy and that we thought we could bring them joy as well, the kinds of projects we wanted to do, and for the right reasons. And so we said definitely no developer work. So we started working with people that, people or businesses that had a long-term, like 10 plus year plan, and that's predominantly residential. Yeah, and in your article, you talk about the transition from defining Maytree as a practice to Mm -hmm. Um, in your mind, what are the biggest differences between running Matri as a practice versus as a business? Yeah, I use the terms fairly interchangeably, really, but I think it's the principle behind it. And I think in architecture, 
we have used this idea of a practice to give us an excuse for not running sound finances, not paying our staff properly, not paying super properly, you know, relying on unpaid overtime to produce lovely projects. Because that's the idea of the craft, that you'll put aside everything to ensure that the craft is, what's the word I'm looking for, is achieved. That's how I've seen a practice work in architecture. And when I think about a business, you think about it, it flips it on its head a little bit. You have to make sure you're financially viable. You have to make sure you're, you're paying your people properly. You have to re- ensure you're not relying on unpaid overtime. And that's the foundation. So I guess it's a it's either craft first or business first. <laughs> and in the past, I've probably seen those things as really warring and competing ideas. But as I've matured, and the business has matured, I think they're really complementary. A thriving business provides you the space and opportunity to do craft well. And and doing good craft does not mean that you have to be bad at business. You know, the the two things really should be complementary. But I guess at the end of the day, the thing we say in Matri is that we're humans first and architects second. So at the end of the day, the well-being of my team will always come first. And at the end of the day, it's our clients' houses and it's their money. So their well-being will also always come first. And I think as well, it's that shift of, yes, those words can be interchangeable, but it's more a representative of a mental shift from tying it to your ego. Yes. Making it a separate thing that has to work and be sustainable and involve foundations that work for everybody as opposed to it being this thing that you started because you wanted to get your work out there and your ego and it's all tied up together Mm -hmm. yeah and and the acceptance of the idea of having failed in that first iteration was that that point at which you know that idea of ego was really put to death for me um, because it was real it was a really humbling and quite harrowing experience to be Mm -hmm. honest and yeah, but it's it's allowed me to kind of move forward in a really authentic way. And I mean, I do think that the letting go of ego produces much better results. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing you talk about is discovering that profit wasn't a dirty word as well. Mm-hmm. And you can also make money off of doing the thing that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your article, you talk about the virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. Do you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So um and full disclosure, the, the word, the concept of profit still makes me um, uncomfortable, you know, it's so ingrained. Yeah, I, I sort of have formed this concept in my mind about a virtuous cycle of good fees allow you time to design and time that's not unpaid over time, genuine time. Um, and the result of that time is a lovely project you know, something you can photograph. It might not get in a magazine. It might not get an award, but it's something that you can be proud of, especially when you're building from the ground up. Like, I mean, your audiences are your audiences emerging architects. You know, when you're starting from the ground up, you're unlikely to launch straight into an award-winning project. You're likely to build over a few years, building better and better work. So yes, you don't start out at the top of your fee position immediately, but paying yourself well, to begin with is really important and acknowledging that that is the time that has bought you that time. You produce a better project, you produce better work, you can charge more for your fees. So it's this lovely thing that feeds. It's a, you know, what do you call that? Like a positive loop. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So do you feel like you've reached a good balance between the business side of things and the stuff you really enjoy, like design and building relationships? Yeah, I do. So we were sort of five years in when I changed the business model and we are now coming up to 11 years in total and we are back up to a team of seven. Yeah, I do. We're producing work that I'm really proud of um, and more importantly, we have people who are doing very well out of the process. You know, our clients are really happy. We're We are learning more and more all the time about managing budgets, managing projects and keeping those risks down for our clients. So I feel like we've gotten all the systems stuff bedded down and it's provided us a really great foundation for that craft. So now we do have more time to produce better work and to and a, a a broader team with more experience so we can challenge our ideas more, which is nice. Yeah, and I think that that's probably, you know, we talked about growth earlier. That's where I've had to learn to not be afraid of growth because really growth is only terrifying when you don't have the foundation right and you don't really know what you're doing. You're just kind of walking blindly. But once you kind of know where you're going, why you're going there, what you'll say yes, what you'll say no to, Mm -hmm. growth is actually, it's not really terrifying. We do want to stay at a position where we have reasonably intimate relationships with our clients and our team, so we're not looking to become an empire. Mm. <laughs> you know, small to medium-sized practice is, yeah. is, is really lovely and it's a good fit for me as a mum as well. In the three years that I've been at Maytree, there have been numerous conversations about our ethos, what we stand for, what kind of clients we want to attract and the work we want to do. I've always loved how the conversation is had often and in a lot of detail. <laughs> When did you realise the importance of defining the ethos? We actually did start the process before I called it quits on Maytree V1. And that's where we sort of really cemented that idea of humans first, architects second. But I don't know, I've always, you know, I'm one of these people that's a sucker for a personality test. Like I've always been interested in why we behave the way we do who we are and for me business identity is not dissimilar to that and being clear about who we are and why attracts and being really clear in that messaging attracts the right kind of people like we had a party recently for a um, completed house where we had client brought 35 friends we bought 35 clients and I just left that night not only drunk but also pinching myself at the quality of the people that we get to hang out with on a regular basis through Maytree. That means, that brings so much morale and joy into the process. Something that I wanted to talk, like that from the pre-interview that I want to hit to that point is um, you said, so I will just say it and then maybe I can ask you a different question and you can say this part, but um, you said that you need more than just the image and the good design because anyone can copy that image, that Mm. it's not only our skill. Yeah, that it's not only our skill. It's not, sorry, it's not only design. It's all the other facets of what we do that we can sell. Mm -hmm. I guess another part of why defining your ethos really matters is that when you produce design products graphics architecture interiors anything you make can be replicated 
you know, it can be mimicked. And, but the thing that can't be mimicked is the experience that our clients get. So, you know, when they come and work with us, they get a very warm approach. Uh, they get a strong accountability to them and to their process. That is the part of who we are that, you know, is distinctly us. And and it's also given me, ha- having that clarity around that has given me a lot of confidence just to be who I am and do what we do because you can't, that's not, you're not competing with anyone, you know, at that point. You might be competing in terms of creation of beautiful images, but that's not where we define our value. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think as well when you put a focus on that, it also um, exposes maybe gaps in your skills or gaps in your team and something you've always been really good at doing is bringing on people that have skills in those areas where you're potentially lacking and you wouldn't recognize that if you didn't take a minute to think about what do we actually do what does everyone bring to the table what are we trying to do yeah and we recalibrate that as you'd know like twice a year so we do a kind of big we do a couple of major sort of training days every year that are about saying who are we? Are we going in the right direction? Is everyone happy? Because, and I think a large part of my approach has always been, you know, I started Maytree to have some autonomy. And of course, I want to be able to provide that for the people that work with me. So being able to shape the culture of your own environment is so important, which is why I think having those conversations is so important. And we talk about how the business side, so, you know, hitting KPIs like making profitability like knowing what we need to keep the business running then allows us to have these deeper conversations and make these connections because if we were just scrounging kind of week to week or if you know careers were unstable no one would really feel like they could invest or really think about their future there if things weren't clear so yeah these foundations of setting up the systems seems to be very important. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's a part of architecture that we don't talk about enough is I've worked in practices where the turnover is quite high. So a client starts a design process with one, maybe with the owner of the business or something, but there's a 2IC. And by the time they've finished, you know, there might be somebody else on construction drawings. And then by the time they've finished, somebody else helping them through CA. And I think a lot of practices run like that. But consistency of having somebody start your job and then still be there a year after it's completed to do a post-occupancy evaluation, that is an awesome thing. And it feeds into the productivity and efficiency of the business because you're not losing IP every time you have staff turnover. So, you know, there's heaps of research, and I couldn't quote you any of it, but heaps of research around how pay gets us so far, and it's certainly important. But after that, you know, autonomy is such and and being thanked you know they're super important for people um for retention and staying where they are and enjoying that yeah definitely um so we've mentioned a few times the word of like foundations of the business but we haven't Mm -hmm. actually talked about maybe what those were like what would you say were maybe two or three of the most important things that we do day to day month to month that keep the business running well Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the foundations of, of what we do, uh, I guess there's a few key things. So the first thing I, I did a few years back was engage a business coach to start working with me regularly and run a, a board meeting style 
management process, I guess, once a month. So that's with Archibiz, um, which is based out of Melbourne. And for any of your emerging architects, I highly recommend their course. They're simple. Uh, they've got a, I think it's called DAPS, Designing Architectural Practice course. It's really, really worthwhile. So, yeah, so I guess having some accountability around the numbers, firstly, that we had t- clear targets. We need to try and turn over this much per month. And this is what a loss number looks like. And this is what a profit number looks like and having an overall goal. And then that transparency with the team. So being able to convey that again a couple of times a year to sort of say, okay, this is where we're at. But also in the monthly like meeting and out what we do a fortnightly meeting, don't we? But we will often, you know, towards the sec- end of the month, we'll start saying, okay, are we actually going to get to the target that we're talking about for this month? Yes or no? If no, what do we do about it, if anything? Um, but at least we know where we're going. It's not a surprise every month. The other thing would be being really selective about the people we work with. Any of your listeners will know so much about a project's success or failure is largely that dynamic between us and them. And I think clients take too much blame or they get lumped with too much blame for that. We don't take enough responsibility to begin with. But I sort of have a few rules of thumb. Like when I first meet a client, if I don't think, oh, my gosh, I'd love to have a beer with them at the end of the week and have a yarn about their life, I'm probably not that interested in taking them on as a client. It doesn't mean I'll reject them outright, but, you know, we I guess what we're looking for from the people we work with is a similar level of openness and unguardedness in relationship because that lends itself to a really lovely fun design process and I mean I think one of the other things that we do that supports that is some of the training that we run around emotional intelligence as a team so you know because even if you are really selective about your clients you'll certainly have people that are still difficult to work with at points and understanding where their values rub up against ours and how to diffuse confrontation open up communication, move people from a threat state into a reward state. You know, those skills and communication, I mean, I don't certainly don't think I came across it anywhere in architecture, but they are so valuable. Um, sorry, architecture school, but I think they're so valuable for actually getting a project over the line. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, especially I imagine as a small business owner starting your first practice, you don't want to say no to clients But actually saying no has meant that you see projects through and that actually creates more profit than starting lots of small things and not finishing and seeing it all the way through. Yeah, and I think if I was to start all over again, that's the key thing that I would do different is I would be more selective. And, you know, I think the funny thing is when we we didn't have a lot of work, I just... I actually put our fees up and started telling people we had a three-month wait, which was totally untrue. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but, you know, it was weird. It created this, you know, it helped me to start to value myself and, and our contribution to people, but it also meant that people were valuing us from that first conversation and our time. So it really did start to transition the types of people that we had knocking on the door. Yeah, and one of the talking points um, is that you said, so I'll, I'll ask you how has this impacted like client outcomes? 
And one of the things you said is it's really easy to design a building. It's really hard to get one built. Hmm. And that the key benefits is that at the moment, like 80% of our leads get built. Hmm. So yeah, I'll ask you that. <laughs> so how have you seen these principles impact client outcomes? I think what it's meant is we have a lot of success in, you know, the people approach us, we get a lot of conversion. So we get a lot of people sign up because they're not only seeing the kind of work that they want to produce maybe on their own project, but they're also seeing, you know, we have a really clear process and set of steps for them to follow. We tell them how to get from A to B. So I guess that gives people a lot of confidence. Yeah, and the other key thing is, you know, it's, yeah, it is really easy to design a building and it is really hard to get a building built. <laughs> so the having the confidence around our processes that we know how to we know how to design to a budget, we know how to manage clients' expectations, we know how to help them shave it back and do some value management if we need to. We have a great team of consultants we consistently work with. We have a great panel of builders we consistently work with. All of those things are enormously valuable. And I would say most practices have that or something like that in their kit of parts. But we often just try and sell design. We don't often value all of those other things that we bring to the table. And often I've had people say, oh, we, you know, we talked to two or three other architects, but, you know, we felt like, you know, you were the one that said, oh, well, you know, you had this panel of builders. I mean, most architects would have a panel of builders they're talking to regularly. But I just happen to say to people, this is how we manage your budget. We'll start working with the builder at step five and, you know, we'll work as a team to get your project built. And, you know, we can give them really clear numbers around the kind of percentages of variations we see during the build. So they they feel like their their investment is being cared for and managed well. Yeah, and also something that I also find rare in architecture um, is the conversation that we actually all want the same thing. It's not mm. us versus the client or the client versus us or us versus the builder um, or us versus the consultants. We actually all want the same thing and it's in everybody's best interest to come together and mm. make sure that everybody is valued and happy with outcomes. Yeah, and I think that that hierarchical idea of being competitive is it's one that is you know I mean I don't know I'm not in other people's practices so I don't know but I think it is dying very worthy death <laughs> because that hasn't worked as a model for architecture you know all we've all that's happened is that we've been shunted more and more to the side of the process so yeah by jumping in boots and all being willing to take responsible for responsibility for a budget and for a timeline you know <laughs> we we pull up the client we write a program for our clients as you know at the start of their um their first step kickoff process we write them you know if it's 12 months 18 months to design we write every step out and we commit to the dates and then we'll pull that up at the end of concept design round two we'll pull that program up and we'll say okay you're here so the program slipped by a couple of weeks or you know the other thing we've started doing recently is our meeting minutes that track all the way through the design process the first page is is this project budget at risk yes or no and do you want to talk about it any further and is your program at, at risk yes or no 
and forcing ourselves to hold ourselves to account, I guess, on on those things. And not that it's all our fault, because it's obviously not like anyone who's worked with a client know they want more than they can afford. But being able to point out to them, yeah, I mean, God, you can have that solid marble bench top if you want, but it is going to sit outside of the yeah. budget that you've currently got. So being able to sort of manage their expectations, it really does soften the blow and it really gets you and the client and the builder all working towards that common goal. Yeah, that was a bit of a rant, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I think that people will really value to hear not just the big kind of broader strategies that we're talking about but but more specific things like that like the programs that we give and the conversations that we have because there is a lot of us yeah like instead of a client saying I want this and we're going oh they can't afford it how frustrating they're not listening to us we go oh we obviously haven't communicated something properly they're like Mm -hmm. not aware let's communicate what can we do and it is this two-sided thing and we're talking now about you know foundations and systems but and how we can put them to the side and do what we love. But actually, they're not really put to the side because we are changing them all the time. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, and anything, you know, we have this thing in the office, any, you know, anything you find yourself doing twice, three times or repeating to people is clearly something that needs a process around it so that we are not saying the same thing over and over again. And so that we're all saying something consistently, like since COVID, our offices become spread from the Gold Coast, Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast with people working remotely. And that is great, but it brings a fresh set of challenges around keeping the culture and the level of service consistent so that, you know, clients are getting, are experiencing the same service, whether whether they're working with Andy or Kate or Alicia or Abby. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I'm wondering what we should move on to. Do you have much to say about, like, in the intro to your article, you talk about this suffering artist mentality and how that was detrimental. What were some of the big things that you saw that mentality impacting and then how did you kind of move to change those? Yeah, so I think we've already touched on one of them, which is that sort of impoverished idea that there might not be the next job. So then saying yes to either too much or yes to the wrong types of jobs and not saying, you know, not having the courage to go, look, that's not a great fit for me right now. So I think that's probably the the first thing. The other was really just the biggest one is obviously just having a good fee position. You know, the self-doubt that I wasn't offering enough to charge properly. And then when you really, you know, a lot of people really care about the work, you know, that's what the best thing about being in this profession is that we are a bunch of dorks who really (laughs) care about what we're doing. But that leads to that unpaid overtime, you know, and in my case, just a lot of overtime. And I didn't really see it as unpaid per se. I probably wasn't paying myself nearly anything anyway to begin with. So, you know, I just didn't value my own time and didn't put money to it. So, yeah, I think they're they're the, probably the biggest the biggest areas, and just the just the negative sense that 
you know, like it, it's hard to put your finger exactly on it, but, you know, at uni everyone would talk about it. Lecturers would make jokes about it or visiting speakers would make jokes. Oh, if you be an architect, you know, it's still time to swap over to project management or, um, you know, and, and I've been guilty of doing that myself. But it's, this is an incredibly rewarding profession and we bring enormous amounts of value to our clients. So I really think that conversation has to shift if it hasn't already. I mean, I may just not have my finger on the pulse, but um, if it hasn't, it needs, it does need to shift because, you know, there's no reason why, you know, we are living in a society that values design more than ever. Some of it they think is cheap because it's proliferated so easily on Instagram or the block, right? But but I think that people are more educated than ever on what is good design and valuing that in their own lives. Um, so, so I think we should be taking advantage of that. Yeah, and something else that you used to say actually not that so long ago is that, you know, you had that triangle and that, we would take jobs on for two or three reasons, good profit, lovely people, or a great portfolio opportunity. But now you talk about a shift to that and how you don't, you, you want all three most of the time. Yeah. So this was something that I did and it, it was valuable for a while in that period of time when I was rebuilding Maytree. That's what I said. I'd, I'd do something. If someone was going to pay me a lot of money and they were nice people, but the job was shit, I'd do it. If the job was going to be awesome but and the people were really lovely but the money was shit, I'd do it. So it needed to meet two of the three things and I probably never saw that it could meet all three of those things. I, I saw them as, as competing, you know, to get a lovely portfolio-worthy project but be paid well for ni- by nice people. <laughs> that just seemed like, you know, the unicorn. Yeah, but yeah, as time's moved on, as time's, you know, gone on, I, yeah, I don't think that they're, they're competing and I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it that way Mm. anymore. Yeah. And are you surprised by how much kind of profit and the monetary value, like the importance of putting the monetary value on our skills is to the success of your business? Because I feel like there is always this thing of, well, if you just are a great designer, everything, that's all that you need. That will speak for itself. You don't need systems. You don't need, you know, all these other things. You just need to do good enough designs. But your experience has not been that clearly. Yeah, I I mean, I think if that was the case, if it was just about doing good enough designs, you wouldn't have so many burnt out and bitter people that you chat to at architect the conferences <laughs> yeah I'm not gonna get in trouble saying that um, yeah because I mean people can, there are amazing designers out there but I think the businesses that stand long term have put the work in the background to to support that and I think there's probably you know we're a very privileged bunch of people architects usually you know we normally come from well-educated families, you know, not always with money, obviously, but plenty of us do come from money. And I think there's not a lot of openness for those starting out. It can seem really disheartening because you're like, you're looking at your peers or you're looking at people that have, you know, launched at the same time as you and they're skyrocketing. And you're like, what's wrong with me? 
but there's nothing wrong with you. You probably just don't have the same financial backing and the same safety net that they do. And when you have a financial safety net, you can take risks. And I sometimes hear things. I hear, you know, listen to different podcasts. I think, can we just all start talking really openly about financially how you launched your practice? Because I know I couldn't have at 30 just, I mean, I did, but I, you know, I think my parents lent me seven and a half grand for my first computer and a rental bond. And um, I think I was paying something like 125 bucks for a room, (laughs) you know. So it was hard going, but I mean, I wouldn't take it back. But, you know, I think that there is a lack of um, honesty sometimes about where our finances are coming from and how we've started the businesses. The other thing too that you mentioned about how architects, we do, we tend to do the self-deprecating jokes of, yeah, like go do project management or oh, I never want my kid to be an architect, that kind of thing. And, we, and you know, there was that recent wellbeing study that literally came out with that most people said that they love their career, they love architecture, but they would never recommend it to a, a, a someone they cared about. <laughs> and I've always, yeah, I've always wondered if that was common in other professions or if that is just something that is specific to architecture because I think one of the things that makes it sustainable for Matri is that we grab the things that we love and we hold on to them and we do those things and the things that we don't love about the profession, we challenge or mm-hmm. we change. I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were like, oh, Matri is quite, and what they do is quite niche. And I was like, well, we just, we do houses. Like that's not niche. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a boutique residential practice. That's not niche. But I guess what we do is our processes are very niche and that's, I guess that's what they meant is that nothing that we do is standard if it doesn't work for us. Yeah, I just think that, that we have to challenge the norms. You know, if something isn't working, it's crazy. It's insanity to keep doing the same thing over and over again. I'll give you a really simple example. I followed the model that I had seen when I started my business that someone would call and they'd want to work with you. And so you would go to their house for free and meet with them. And you'd probably spend an hour to two hours if it was a good conversation there, having a look at their house, talking about their scope, talking about their dreams, giving away probably some ideas. You'd go back to the office, you'd sit down for six, seven, eight hours, you'd write a distinct fee proposal for that person. And you're like trying to spitball. Mm, she said her husband was a lawyer. I probably could peg the fee a little bit higher for this person and it might get through, which, you know, is based in a whole bunch of self-doubt around your money and your your worth. Like who cares if he's a lawyer or a teacher? You're worth what you're worth. doesn't matter. So, I was, And then I was sending out these fee proposals by email after having invested all of this time and I just literally would hear crickets. And this is the only model I've seen for fee proposals my whole life. And my whole life, that's a bit traumatic. <laughs> Your whole career. <laughs> and so then I just was like, this isn't working for me. I'm just going to stop. So I put a, I stopped doing free visits to people's houses. I didn't, I don't charge for those visits. But what we do is there's a link on our website. You can make an inquiry there. We started to do this, um, you know, a 15-minute free phone call with an architect. 
So it meant that I did lots of 15-minute phone calls, but it was a really limited investment of my time. And if the conversation went well and I had gone, yeah, they're really cool and this sounds like a good project, whatever, I would then make a time to meet them at their property. But I would bring with me my fee proposal because I would have hashed out with them already what their budget, what budget they were talking to. If I, if they said it was 400, but I could clearly tell it was 800K, I would be able to tell them straight up in that first 15 minutes. If they said, what are your fees for that? I would say, I don't know, X. I actually don't know what our fees are. <laughs> there's a table there somewhere. Yeah. But um, I can tell them straight up. There's no doubt in my mind. And because there's no doubt in my mind, there's no question in my voice. So they just are like, all right, that's what she costs. Mm -hmm. That's what that costs. Mm -hmm. And then... We take the fee proposal, it's all printed up, it's got it's got their distinct fee with their sort of uh, program, it's got a breakdown of our 10 steps of design from kickoff to styling and it's got all the same terms and conditions. I spend half an hour adapting every fee proposal for that client because it's just changing a few key things but everything else is a template and close to 100% of the people we go and talk to in their home with a fee proposal sign up just going you know what this process has got to work for me and it's got to it's got to make people feel comfortable and secure and safe to work with you as well mm -hmm. so I just anything where you know you're butting your head up against a process that isn't rewarding you just got to go well, there's there must be another way to do this and just before you mentioned how there was no question in your voice so then they go okay great and I feel like that's such, that's so true. If you just say things how they are and you say them confidently and you just lay it out on the table, it's going to be this much at this time. These are the points we can pull out. These are the points that you, you know, locked in. This is when we will reconsider. Like we can re-talk about budget, blah, blah, blah. You give everybody all the steps just laid out. They don't have a problem with it. They just want to know. But if you go, oh, it could be around this or it could be maybe that or trying to that is where you find people they pull out. Yeah, Those and most people, out. we want certainty. Like we want certainty and confidence and we'll pay more if we know it's going to be good. So it's a no-brainer. Yeah. It's so, yeah, we do that all the time. It's that thing of, oh, I could just get the food, that the meal that I always like, right? Like the meal that I always get because I know that it will be good and it stepped out of me as opposed to getting the thing that you've never tried because it might not work out. So I yep. feel like the more information we give our clients, as opposed to holding on to that thinking like, oh, well, they don't understand where the architect, they're not, there's no point explaining to them all the design yep. process. We're better to just give them the outcome. That's not true at all. They do want to understand they're invested, especially for residential. They're putting their money down. This is their dream home for their family. They want to know. And by telling them what we do, they then see the value. Yes. It is that cycle. <laughs> another way, like another thing that we've sort of shaken up, and I'm totally happy to be transparent about it, is about percentage and fixed fees. So we charge percentage fees and we have a, you know, I think it ranges from like 18% at about 300K at the moment and dropping to something like maybe 9% at 2 mil. So, and it's like a spectrum. And but what we do is, because everybody knows there's always scope creep in a project, clients always want more. So we say, look, this is our fee for this. If you stay within 20% of that budget that we've discussed, 
no no worries. So if you've signed up at 800 and you're sort of creeping on 950 a mil, we probably won't raise it because there's probably not a significant addition to our workload. But if we're moving up to 1.1, yeah, we will vary our fee for those stages of work. And that's why getting to some price certainty really early in our process is super important. And just that simple change because clients think, oh, architects, you know, they're going to charge percentage. So if I, cha- if I choose like Astra Walker, beautiful gold-plated taps, I'm going to have to pay more to my architect, but the tap didn't cost the architect anything more. You know, you hear that stupid argument. And so the, essentially we're giving our clients a fixed fee. If they stay within 20% of their budget, as far as they're concerned, they don't need to have another conversation with us about their fee. And if they're going above that, we can tell them, hey, you know, you came to signed up at one at one mil. You're now talking about a 1.2 mil project. Are you happy for us to submit a variation for that additional scope? And they, I've never also I've never heard had an uncomfortable conversation around that because everybody it, that's, they know it's what they signed up to. It's very clear in our first conversations, and they're knowingly going up that budget bracket. They're not finding out after the job's been tendered and they've spent 100% of their fee with us. They're finding out at about 35% of their fee with us, getting some budget certainty around that. Yeah, and it gives them the agency and accountability as well for their own decisions. There's no surprise on either end. And even just recently, we had a client who has won quite a big design change quite far into the process. And we went, okay, we can do that. This is what it's going to cost. This is what we're allowing for. And once you put it in their hands, they then they can decide the value. And then they can go, yep, no, I do really want this thing. I'm happy to pay for it. Or mm. they go, okay, maybe not. You know, and then there's no resentment. It's not us going, oh, they're making us do this thing that they're not going to pay. Or there's no resentment on their end being like, they didn't tell me they were going to charge and then they did it and then they, were gonna, and they charged me. Yeah, that's right. And our fee proposal quite literally says you will never get an invoice for something that hasn't been discussed beforehand. Like you'll never get, like in our variations clause, it says, you know, you'll never get a variation that you're not expecting. You know, we will always discuss it with you and quote it before we proceed. But like on the, um, you know, the jumping in boots and all and actually project managing clients' job, uh, you know, budgets and stuff, at that, you know, when we're sitting down with a client saying, okay, look, your project is at 1.2, you know, and plus another 5% contingency during the build or whatever giving them a, a list of options that says, it's, this is it at 1.2, but these are the things you could do to pull it back to 1 or 1.1, mm-hmm. you know, but being the active agent in managing their budget and putting the tools in their hands to say, oh, okay, my architect has given me a range of options to pull it back mm-hmm. or fuck it all, I want the marble bench top, I'm going to 1.2, you know, and that then gets rid of that myth that architects blow budgets. You know, if we were all jumping in and taking that level of responsibility and accountability with our clients, you know, that that myth could be busted super quick. Yeah. Okay. Look, I value the honesty. It's a conversation that I have all the time about these people that reach this point and it seems so, you know, admirable when they talk about, oh, I just, you know, didn't watch TV for three months and then, I, you know, started a business that it's all that that's all I needed to do. And it's like, oh, yes. And then you also had someone who was cooking for you. You also had someone that 
you know, you also didn't clean your house for three months. You also, yeah. and I feel like there, that actually being honest about what was required and that there is nitty gritty things and there is some kind of messiness that comes into it. Mm. just makes it a lot more accessible and attainable for people. And even though this conversation is very positive and about what we do for problems and how we solve things and how we connect, there are some really tough days still. Like there are some really tough weeks where things just, projects aren't just going how we want or something's Mm -hmm. on site. And even with all of these systems, you cannot avoid some tough days. No way. (laughs) Yeah, But I think, yeah, well, just having this foundation and then at the end of the day, yes, we're having tough days, but because we spend an equal amount of time investing into the culture and the team, that is actually the thing that keeps us going as well more than anything. That's right. You've got that support within the team. I remember one day when I had to have a conversation with a client and I can't remember what it was, but I, I, it was going to be a really hard conversation. And you said to me, remember, you're under no physical threat. Because <laughs> we've done that course on, you know, how our bodies and our nervous systems experience threat yeah. as if the tiger prowling in the office, but really it's just an unpleasant conversation that we have to have. And yet our whole systems are wired to sense threat. And that level of support between each of the team members is so valuable be able to you know um, encourage one another pick each other up yeah it's yeah. and just learning about each other like doing personality quizzes as a team and being like yeah. oh so this is what you need in your team or this is what you like to do and it just adds that level of okay what can I do to support each other again we're all in this together we all want the same outcomes mm. so how can we support the client but also how can we support the team and that is also the thing that makes it really sustainable. Like you talked about making Matri was your last ditch effort on creating a environment that you could actually thrive in. And mm. a big part of that is was curating the team mm. and, as well as the clients. That's right. And it really serendipitously, I named Matri, M-A-Y-T-R-W-E, and I named it after a range of kind of senses and spaces I loved in growing up in autumn in New Zealand. I was seeing a psychologist at the time and she she said to me, do you realise Maitri is a Sanskrit word that means loving kindness? Um, it's spelt differently, M-A-I-T-R-E, but said the same. And it was really serendipitous. And as I've become maybe more comfortable in my own skin and less competitive and just more happy about the specific race that we're running at Maytree, our own little race, I've been able to really own that concept of kindness. It felt too much of a, it's very much the bedrock of how I think about life, but for me it felt like too much of a feminine word to really own in this space. But, yeah, we own it now. And that kindness within the team and with our clients and with our builders and with our suppliers and with our colleagues is a really important part of the culture we're trying to build. Yeah. So I guess to wrap up, if you were kind of given all of this information now, you read your own article and you were going to start your own business, 
how do you think it would or what would you have changed about your approach to the business? I would spend more time understanding finances and becoming financially literate, whether that's a small accounting course um, or something like the Archibiz uh, DAPS course, and I know there's other ones out there, but I would have spent more time building those skills that you don't learn at university. And, I mean, that's the biggest one. I would be, and again, that reiterating, being more deliberate about the work you do. You're defined more by the work you don't do than by the work you do do. So being really deliberate about what you're going to give your time and heart and energy to. I love that. You're defined by what you don't do. So good. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much for this chat. It's really good to talk about this stuff and I feel very privileged like most bosses won't be talking to their graduate about the business of the things and that you know I hate that word boss so yeah no and I don't really call you that very often but for the context yeah and I think just the transparency that we've always had in the office and that now we're extending to the wider community is just really valuable yeah so yeah so just to wrap up if you want to learn more you can find Beck's article the art of good business at parlor.org.au and you can also go to matriestudios.com.au for more content about matri's ethos processes and projects awesome thanks abby This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guest interviewer, Abigail Lee, and our guest, registered architect and director at Maytree Studios, Rebecca Caldwell. Thank you so much for talking about the work you're doing and how you're approaching architecture services in your own unique way. Rebecca gave a great presentation at the Australian Institute of Architects 2023 National Conference, so I'm glad we were able to have you on the podcast to expand on your professional journey. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Abigail Lee and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.